Давайте. I thought I'd talk about how mind habits change. We've talked a lot about habits. As a matter of fact, it just now comes into my mind that uh, once a year is kind of a more or less, I don't have a date that I do it, but there's a, uh, a, a film called Kundun that was made some years ago and it's the story of the life of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, made in collaboration with him, with his input and stories and history. And uh, there's one particular scene, I, so once a year, more or less, I watch it, because I love it. It's beautiful, the pageantry is, is uh, you know, the, the, the cinematography is amazing. It always uh, moves me. Uh, and there's one particular scene where the actor who's playing the young Dalai Lama, who's been recognized as the incarnate uh, Dalai Lama, is being uh, educated by his teachers and he's repeating back his lessons and uh, kind of as a catechism, repeating back the list of this and the list of that. And he's doing the Four Noble Truths and he says the first Noble Truth, life is suffering, dukkha. And then he says the second, uh, the cause of suffering is craving which is an appropriate kind of rendition of the Second Noble Truth. And his teachers stop him and they say, too much ego. So I think to myself, and he's thinking it over. And then, uh, too much pride, they say, too much pride. Uh, and he thinks it over and then he says, he restates the Second Noble Truth as, I am the cause of most of my suffering as a result of the habits of my own mind. And it's tremendously touching because the little boy playing this part is supposed to be at this point eight years old. And uh, it's an extraordinary thing for people to know at any age. But for an eight-year-old, of course, if you're the incarnate Dalai Lama, I guess you know that. But that particular line, I am the cause of most of my suffering, because of the habits of my own mind. I thought today I would talk about changing the habits of the mind, or how do they change as a result of this practice. And I was motivated particularly to do it uh, yesterday morning. Someone here, remember Sally did the standing meditation, and uh, then afterwards uh, she was taking questions about it. There was someone over here who said, uh, in talking about his own experience, that he found himself left standing. Everybody else had, sat, had already sat down. And uh, it felt right for him to stand. But then he had a, a series of recollections of a time that he had stood out in certain circumstances way in the past, as I understood it. And the feelings of uh, humiliation or being singled out came up to him and, he, and they echoed in him in a way that you could tell made him feel momentarily bad in that memory. And he, he, he had his hand on his heart. He had somebody over there who said that. And Sally spoke quite correctly, I think, about how that works, that, uh, that we sometimes unexpectedly have a connection come up out of the recesses of our memory bank that we don't expect at all, and all of a sudden, whoa, there it is, not only the memory, but the attendant feeling. 
And to the, the message that I got in their interchange was that when we have a memory come up like that from the recesses of our mind and with its attendant feeling, if we can be with it, with the feeling that came up of uh, uncomfortableness under the circumstances, remembering how we felt then, and if we can hold it in this moment in a more balanced way, which doesn't mean without the feeling, but means with the feeling held in a frame of equanimity. And I took that hand on the heart to mean really a compassionate, uh, uh, a compassionate uh, permutation of equanimity. That if we're able to be compassionate to ourselves in this moment, it heals in some mysterious way that memory, uh, that not in the memory bank of uncomfortableness. I think that for myself, I can imagine my whole um, my whole life of looking at myself and st- finding things that come up that are still painful that echo out of the recesses of my history, or out of but more out of the rec- the recesses of my history, and to say, oh, look at that knot, oh, and to be able to hold it both in equanimity and in tenderness and care and compassion, that. It, the knot is not so tight that I once had a teacher who said, if you could think of your whole life and have it run through your hand like the sand in the sandbox, you can remember it all, but it wasn't so hard and lumpy. If you could just kind of play in your life with its memories, say, all these things that they happened to me. Wow, it's an amazing thing, life. So I thought about how do those not surface? How do they untie? What are the strategic things that we do that help in the untying of knots? Someone once said to me, you know, everything that ever happened to you is in there. And Actually, I don't think that's true because there are things that people remind me of and my college roommate will say, remember the time we did X? And I have no recollection of X <laughs> whatsoever. And my memory is very good. But, and I think that's true. There are some things that completely get erased from the memory bank if they're not carrying some charge that holds them there. The stuff that's charged tends to stay there. I think that the mind maybe keeps things that are charged because it hasn't yet worked them through, and maybe when they get a little bit easier and the knots are a little bit untied, they don't have to remember them so much. I had a, 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 a just a, a, a funny memory, an odd one. I hadn't remembered it. I, I started to practice in 1977, so you can see how old this memory is. I hadn't thought of it in years, but it's a it's an example of a knot in the mind. One of my first experiences of learning how knots in the mind get untied on the very first morning of the very first 14-day retreat that I signed up for and went on away from home. I didn't know a soul. It was up in Washington State. And uh, all the women slept in one big dormitory. It was a Catholic girls' school during the winter and in the summer they rented it out. So we all slept in one big dormitory with uh, curtained-off sections around our beds, like you see in hospitals, a, a curtain that comes around on a, on a, on a pole. You have a little bit of privacy, 
but not really, because you're sleeping with 50 women in a room. And I had brought uh, with me, not knowing what I would need, I guess, a travel alarm clock. And you don't need an alarm clock on a retreat because somebody comes with a bell in the morning. Unbeknownst to me, that alarm clock was set from who knows where for 10 or 15 minutes before the extremely early wake-up hour anyway. And it was in the drawer next to my bed. So I, I go to sleep the first night, early the next morning, there's an alarm clock going off. And I wake up and I realize it's my alarm clock. And I have to rummage in the drawer to find it and you know, I'm startled and turn it off. And it was really only 10 or 15 minutes before the bell rang for the whole dormitory to wake up. But I was plagued with the idea that I had done something so gauche as to wake up these 50 sleeping women. And how could I have done such a stupid thing? And how could I have not paid careful attention to whether or not it was turned on or off? And what a thing, and so foolish. And what happened in the course of that day is every inept thing that I've ever done in my whole life <laughs> just poured out of my memory bank like there's a file of every ineptitude that you ever did, and it presented itself. And I was agonized. By, first of all, probably nobody knew whose alarm clock it was. I am the only holder of that information. I didn't <laughs> confess, but anyway, I was sure. My mind, even without people knowing, I was humiliated. How could that have happened? And it was going on and on, an endless list. And sometime that afternoon, I remember I had a job mopping the floor after lunch. I can remember the very time I was pulling the mop out of a squeegee, we, and I had, I had this thought, it was really an insight. I thought, unless I put this thought down, I'm gonna make myself crazy, because it couldn't stop the whole day. And it was so clear. I am the author of my own suffering due to the habits of my mother, so clear. Either you drop this thought, Sylvia, or you'll make yourself crazy. And I thought, it was a way before I understood any Dharma talk I got it that I had something to do with whether or not I suffered. I didn't remember that until today when I was thinking about how, how a certain kind of a far away event triggers some memory from who knows where, that triggers feelings from who knows where, that triggers commentary about the feelings. The comments that people have talked about that our minds are making constant comments, usually not complimentary. Um, it's rare, isn't it, that your mind says, well, you did that great. That was really, you really, <laughs> this business of meditation, piece of cake, you really got it down. You really made it on the front. It doesn't do it, you know, it's just it, more, you know, it, it's a, uh, so I, I just happened to be reading this New Yorker just yesterday. The picture of a man waiting for an elevator, and you might, if you can, if you can see, see that he's got a tiny little man standing on his shoulder. It, it's probably meant to be him when he's a child because it's uh, not only a small figure, but it's dressed in little boy overalls. And he's got one of those helicopter hats on his head and a beach pail. So it's probably his child inside of him. Uh, and it's called the idiot on my shoulder. And the idiot on the shoulder standing by the elevator is saying to him, try pushing the button a few more times. That might make the elevator move faster. <laughs> it's 
I mean, we have all kinds of voices that tell us all kinds of unhelpful and often incorrect information. And one of the things about erasing the habits of the mind is recognizing the commentary that's trying to convince you that those comments are true as comments. They're nothing, they're just comments. And often not true. Often they're comments that our parents made or our school teachers made, or we ourselves for some reason made up an evaluation, an opinion of ourselves. You might call that when you say the habits, I am the cause of my own suffering because of the habits of my mind. That is the habit of not recognizing that a thought is just a thought. It's not an imperative for action. It might not even be true. I once, uh, also in the very early days of my sitting, uh, brought with me a, a bench. I'd, I'd sit on the Zafu. I'd sit on the Zafu. I had every way of organizing my experience so I was comfortable. I sat on a Zafu. But I sat against the back wall just in case I'd get tired and I'd have to lean. So I'm sitting on a Zafu, leaning against the back wall. And next to me, I brought a little meditation bench just in case I wanted to change from the Zafu to the meditation bench. So you see, I'm really triply prepared for any discomfort. And, uh, but I'd been at this meditation retreat now for a couple of weeks, and I felt good. And I actually felt my mind was quite poised and really relaxed. And I noticed in the lunch line, as we were waiting to scrape our dishes, I looked across and saw a person waiting to scrape the dishes who had just arrived at the retreat. And I didn't know, I hadn't noticed before, so I didn't recognize them. And my mind had the thought that made the thought, said, that's not a very good looking person. <laughs> and I heard myself think that. And I was interested in the fact that my mind didn't even feel terrible. I said, I didn't get all upset about what an ignoble thought. And I thought, whoa, look how relaxed I am. Truth is, wasn't a very good-looking person. <laughs> but, you know, it was without malice. It was just, you know, and the sky is blue. It wasn't a big deal. So I told myself, look how relaxed my mind is. I'm making so much headway. <laughs> I go into the meditation hall. I sit down, and I'm sitting there quietly. Not so long after that, I hear, like, footsteps next to me, and I open my eye over here, and I see a hand reaches down, picks up my bench, that's after all my bench, and takes it away and sits down on it. And, and lo and behold, it's the very person that I had the thought about, about how they looked. I then started three or four or five days of plague thoughts about, first of all, it was, a, uh, it was some kind of karmic retribution for thinking the thought. And how am I going to, and then I thought, well, maybe they just took it for this one hour, but they didn't, they kept it. <laughs> how am I going to get it back? Should I write them a letter? Maybe I should write a note. It's not nice. They said, don't write any notes. How could I write a note? I'll upset him if I write a note and say, it, you know, how would I, well, say, I'm sure you didn't realize that it was my bench and when you took it. No, no, that's not nice. I'll feel upset if I did that. Ruminate, ruminate, worry, worry habit of ruminate, habit of craving. I need not only the wall and my zafu, I need also the bench. <laughs> habit of worry, what if at the end of the retreat, and if he doesn't know it's my bench, he might go home with it. Uh, habit of doubt about how come I can't calm down my mind. Two minutes ago, I was so sure I had great equanimity. 
habit of indignation, how could a person just take your bed? It's so curiosity. Every bad mind state, you know, oh, habits, habits, habits. And they're all actually permutations of the habit of ignorance. They're all confusions of the mind. They're all manifestations of ignorance. The truth is, if I thought about it, which I didn't until very much later, the truth is that one day before the end of the retreat, when my mind was at a fever pitch about what if he goes off with it, I came back and uh, he was gone. He left. And my, my bench was right there, and I got it and put it back. <laughs> And I never sat on it. I just had it. But, but the truth is that earlier on, if I had not been beguiled by all these confusing energies, I could have thought to myself, either he'll return the bench or he won't. And the truth is, I have a zafu. It doesn't matter. That would have been just saved the whole week of <laughs> agitation. So one, the, really the habit that we're looking at is the habit of confusion, the habit of ignorance, the habit of not seeing things clearly. Uh, I think I mentioned to you the other day uh, about a sixth grader who said to me, how do you know? He said, my problem is I don't know that I'm not paying attention when I'm not paying attention. So it's a really, it's a very good question, how do you know that you're not paying attention? And I thought about it again. How do I know that the habit of confusion has taken over my mind? One way is uh, if I've become upset, if I have a very strong feeling and an opinion about something, to check, at this moment, can I feel my body? Can I take a breath? Is my body there? Is my breathing there? It's not only is my body there, is my breathing there. Of course my body and breathing is there. But if for a moment I can put my attention on it, it means that it's not been wholly captivated by a confusing energy. It means my attention is mine for the using. I can take a breath. I can take another breath. I can feel my body here. The other way I check is, is my goodwill available for me? Goodwill in the sense of my ability to feel connected warmly to myself, among other things, maybe primary around other things. Can I feel even bad in, for myself in the moment of flurry or challenge, that I'm flurried or challenged? If I could, I could say to myself, sweetheart, take a breath, relax, we'll figure it out. But that goodwill would have to be there. I feel goodwill for myself or for somebody else. Really, the, the, the word that most uh, characterizes that goodwill is the ability to care. Sometimes we care in the kind of loving way of metta. Sometimes we care in compassion. Sometimes we care in, in, in empathic joy. But there's some kind of connection that's part of caring. It's part of equanimity. It's a, a, a balance of a presence in the, in, the, in the world that really remembers the, the relationships, really remembers the power of connecting with care. One of the saddest sentences, I think, I, maybe it's a, just a fun thing to say, but it doesn't seem to me fun, is when people want to tell you they totally disdain something, they, couldn't, they say, I couldn't care less. That's really a painful sentence, I couldn't care less. Um, they will bereft of the ability to care. 
the near enemy of equanimity is indifference. Couldn't care less. I don't care. Equanimity is the ability to hold everything in a balance and in wisdom. It's non-confusion. It's wisdom. <coughs> Indifference disconnects us, and we're not alive anymore. And I th- when I thought about that, and I wrote that down today, I looked this up, and you know, Google is marvelous. It tells you everything. I, I said to myself, it's really, I was thinking, this is the line of thinking, uh, if I don't care, even for myself, then really some death has happened. There's a lack of liveliness. And uh, you probably know Maury Zendak, where the wild things are. Do you, do you know Pierre? Who knows Pierre? And a couple of people. Once was a boy named Pierre who only would say, I don't care. Hear his story, my friend, for you'll find at the end that a suitable moral lies there. One day his mother said, as Pierre climbed out of bed, Good morning, darling boy. You are my only joy. Pierre said, I don't care. What would you like to eat? I don't care. Some lovely cream of wheat? I don't care. Don't sit backwards on your chair. I don't care. Or pour syrup on your hair? I don't care. You're acting like a clown. I don't care. We have to go to town. I don't care. Don't you want to come, my dear? I don't care. Would you rather stay right here? I don't care. So his mother left him there. His father said, get off your head head or I will march you up to bed. Pierre said, I don't care. I would think that you would could see. I don't care. Your head is where your feet should be. I don't care. If you keep standing upside down, I don't care. We'll never, never get to town. I don't care. If only you would say, I care. I don't care. I'd let you hold the folding chair. I don't care. So his parents left him there. They didn't take him anywhere. Now, as the night began to fall, a hungry lion came to call. He looked Pierre right in the eye and asked him, would you like to die? And Pierre said, I don't care. I can eat you, don't you see? I don't care. Then you'd be inside of me. I don't care. Then you'd never have to bother. I don't care with a mother or a father. I don't care. Is that all you have to say? I don't care. Then I'll eat you if I may. So the lion ate Pierre. (laughs) Arriving home at six o'clock, his parents had a dreadful shock. They found the lion sick in bed. They cried, Pierre is surely dead. They pulled the lion by the hair. They hit him with the folding chair. His mother cried, where is Pierre? The lion answered, I don't care. (laughs) His father said, Pierre's in there. They rushed the lion into town. The doctor shook him up and down. And when the lion gave a roar, Pierre fell out upon the floor. He rubbed his eyes and scratched his head and laughed because he wasn't dead. His mother cried and held him tight. His father said, are you all right? Pierre said, I am feeling fine. Please take me home. It's half past nine. The lion said, if you would care to climb on me, I'll take you there. Then everyone looked at Pierre, who shouted, yes, indeed, I care. The lion took them home to rest and stayed on as a weekend guest. The moral of Pierre is care. (laughs) That's good, isn't it? I just, uh, I haven't read that in a long time. That's the way I think that I check if my uh, if my mind is held hostage by uh, a, a, a state that's overtaken it. That a thought has brought a certain state, or a thought has exploded and consumed the whole space of my mind, so that the world disappears and I disappear, connections disappear. We say things like "blinded by lust." 
or blinded by rage. You think about it. In our recent history, in more than one occasion, in very recent history, in well, uh, prominent public figures who actually are very intelligent make dreadful mistakes blinded by lust. And the lust skews the mind so that the mind makes an excuse for me that this is okay and I can go to school do this and it's not okay. Blinded by fear or anger, we do uh, things that later we might regret. A friend of mine works uh, uh, for the prison system and she said that uh, one of the most telling moments in her own learning curve as she took this job some decades ago was uh, talking to a person in a, talking to a man in a, in a group of people who were all incarcerated for actually for usually quite violent crimes and talking about why someone had hit another person. He said, why did you do that? What, what made you do that? He said, well, I didn't. He said, I don't know. He said, because I didn't know I had hit him until after I did it. But really, that really the, the reason I tell you that story is I really wanted to say that by paying attention in this way, those are two dramatic kinds of examples of blind by rage and blinded by lust. But in both of them, they're dramatic um, examples of no space between, I want this, I need to have it, I'll take it, and I don't want this, I don't like it, I'll get rid of it. No space between, I like this, or I don't like this, and any other things that come after this. It's even possible for the mind to think, this is a pleasant thing, I'd like to have it, but it's uh, not correct for me to have it. So that's it, no imperative arising. The mind stays relaxed, doesn't work. When there's enough sila in the mind, enough, enough, enough uh, morality formulation in the mind, and enough equanimity and enough wisdom to know this would be an unwise thing to do. You know those stories I just mentioned about the man in the prison who hit somebody before he knew he had done it? Or I alluded to prominent figures who are blinded by lust and do things that cost them their family and their reputation and their careers. When I think about them, I honestly feel badly for them. I, mean, I, I, I kind of, um, I was thinking about it as I was writing this down today. I was thinking, it's hard for me to imagine how it feels to be driven by a, a mind state that's that intense. I think actually that's really uh, such a crucial point of um, being able to appreciate, uh, maybe appreciate's the wrong word, but sort of empathize or sympathize with that degree of pain in the mind that causes blindness and unwise behavior to happen. So I was thinking about making a list of uh, the, the, the uh, techniques or the uh, 
capacities that we use to change habits. We see that such and such a habit, when we wake up to the fact that such and such a habit is leading to suffering, and not doing that habit leads to the end of suffering. And really, people get this. When I get it, I realize that I'm riding along in my car, and I suddenly realize that my hands are gripping the steering wheel. And if I trace back and see what's going on in my mind, I realize that I have begun to talk, rerun uh, maybe a teacher meeting at Spirit Rock. So-and-so said, I wish they hadn't said that. Next time I'll say this. That was uncool that they said that. And, that, and I start to really be grabbing the steering wheel. I realize, wait a minute, what's going on here? And I, if I catch myself and I think, wait a minute, this indignant rumination is not going anyplace good. It's making me tight and unhappy. And when I see this person and I have really worked up a storm about it, maybe I'll bring it up in the wrong way. Let me just back up and not fuel the fire of my indignation. And think about when I see this person, or could I go and phone them up and say, listen, I'd like to maybe talk over that point you brought up in the meeting today. I, maybe I misunderstood you, I didn't feel so good about it. That you can back up and say, I'm going down a road that's leading no place good. I'd like to go another way. But there needs to be enough mindfulness presence to say, you know what? I don't feel good, what's going on? Why am I gripping the steering wheel? Oh, this revenge plot is going on in my mind. That's what doesn't feel good. That's what's not good. Revenge, you know, revenge is not sweet, contrary to whatever myth you may have heard about revenge is sweet. It's not. And if I catch my mind going down a road that's not going to any place good, the ability to stop it and go in another direction is a fabulous talent. But it's actually a, a, quite a common human talent. We do that all the time. We say, let me not make myself crazy with this. I'll think about something else. And I'll take care of this. I could just work up a storm about it. To be able to catch oneself working up a storm about something and say no is a very uh, huge accomplishment. I'm trying to think of other habits. You know, when people have a habit of... Uh, it's clearer when people have a habit of uh, substance use that isn't wise and isn't good for them. When they join a group, then clearly the, the technique is to have noticed this is an unwise thing to do. I have to stop doing it. I have to get group support to help me from doing it. I have to feel the feelings that I have of deprivation from not doing it. I have to have enough equanimity in my mind and enough concentration to really uh, fortify my determination not to go that way. And then I have to be able to really be alert to the feelings of pleasure of having averted going in a direction I didn't want to do. So it all requires enough equanimity in the mind to see I'm going down the wrong road, decide I don't want to do this, I want to do something else, and really effort to go someplace else. When you think about the three middle parts of the Eightfold Path, effort, mindfulness, and concentration, the ability to say, whoops, I'm going a place I don't want to go, internally or externally. Let me stop, let me do something else. I think every time we do that with a habit, we are really doing something monumental in the mind, like changing the course of the Mississippi by moving one grain of sand 
at the time, over and over and over again, you make a new habit pattern. I sometimes think about the habit patterns that are not visible, like uh, uh, people like myself. I, I think of myself as a recovering fretter. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I say it in that sort of funny way, and people always laugh. But it's actually true, and there may be a certain number of people here who are habitual fretters. Anybody here thinks they're a habitual fretter? When in doubt, worry that uh, on the least thing, it's, it's a really a drag, isn't it? Because you know that other people don't have that. Other people say to you, and they're completely right, there's no point in worrying. You do the best you can, and worrying doesn't help, and they're completely right. But that's not anything that you can say to the, your mind if you're a fretter who is used to the mind running off with a fret and churning up every possible catastrophic worry. I like to tell people that I'm a recovering fretter because, the, the, the tr first of all, because it's true. And it's also true that my mind has not stopped making catastrophic thoughts. It does that. That's the kind of mind that those of us who have that, you phone somebody who should be someplace at that time and they're not there. And instead of thinking they're not there, you think, ah, oh, what could have happened to them? Or you're in the airport and they say, uh, ladies and gentlemen, can I have your attention, please? And there's like half a second before they say, please keep a close watch on your suitcases. <laughs> but in that half second, you think, ah, the plane I'm waiting for has developed engine trouble. You know, it's a one possibility out of a billion that it could be that. It's much more likely it's going to be watch the luggage. But the mind, given a tiny space, leaps in, makes a new idea. And for those of us who have that catastrophic inclination, it does that. What happens in my mind these days is it thinks the thought, and it doesn't believe it, for the most part, for the most part. If I'm not overly tired or overly confused or somewhat burdened, if my mind's in a reasonably good place, I think to myself, look at that. My mind is still doing its same old thing. It's an amazing thing, you know? My eyes have not changed color, and my uh, mind machine has not become different from what it was. It makes the same, it deflects challenges in the same way that ever it did, but not in enough of a way to make a big difference to me anymore. It's a huge thing, you know? If you go to a group for some kind of habit that other people can share, it's, I think, in so, I'm not saying any habit is easy, but it's embarrassing to be a fretter, you know, because it doesn't make any sense. But I noticed how many people put up their hands, too. <laughs> so when we come to that fork in the road, there are all kinds of uh, possibilities for the mind to be seduced by any kind of... Uh, Thing that we are prone to be seduced by. Remember in Alice in Wonderland that she falls down a rabbit hole and there are cookies say eat me or bottles say drink me and she eats and she drinks and it's possible for a thought to come along and say think me and you can say no I'm not going to do that thank you very much. That would be a bad idea for me to think you because if I thought you 
I would then be in for a whole morning of thinking the same thing, and it would start up a kind of discursive rumination over the same point that I've gone over 50 billion times. And I, on the other hand, I'm trying to establish some equanimity here so I could have some fresh insights. So thank you very much. I'm not thinking you. I'm going straight ahead to my breath or to my metaphrase. It's really, again, concentration and mindfulness and effort. There's a little seduction that says, you know, you're a little sleepy. Why don't you just go lie down in your bed? No one will know. Take a nap. You know, your body is tired. You work so hard. You're finally here. You don't have to sit every sitting. Go lie down. It's like the president, you know, push the elevator button. It's just a thought, and you don't have to do it. And say, no, you know, as a matter of fact, I am a little sleepy. I'll go sit on my zafu. If I nap, I'll nap on the zafu. I'll wake up from time to time. By the way, you do. Nobody has falls off a zafu. They sit. Yeah, or a chair. You wake up from time to time, and when you wake up, say, oh, okay, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out. You actually have a lot of opportunities to practice mindfulness and concentration. But it requires the, immediate, the initial effort of discerning. This might be a way, this might be a way, this might be the wiser course in this way. Really, another way to think about it is teaching the mind to uh, re-establish itself in equanimity so that it remembers what's true. Wisdom remains intact and uh, the mind can make good decisions. Remember years ago, my friend Bill Cohen uh, developed a, a not a treatable cancer and he died quite young. And he wrote a letter to his friends and sent it out, had it to, to be sent out after his death. And in the letter he wrote uh, about his life, he said, I would have wanted more, but I never wanted other. And I thought that was really an amazing thing, to be able to say, I never wanted other. I think it's the nature of the human mind to often want other, more or less or different or something. There's a certain way in which what we're training the mind to do here is not to crave other. That would be a better way. You know, we, there's wants that come up. I think there's a difference between wants and needs. And maybe when we're entirely content, we don't even want other. This is just fine, just the way it is. I think sometime about... Um, the first line of the 23rd Psalm, uh, actually it's the second verse, the second phrase, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And it goes on to say I'll be provided with a place to rest and cool water. But I think it doesn't have to say I'll have all these provisions. Because I don't think it's the provisions that it's talking about. I think it's talking about a mind that doesn't need it to be different. For a while, people used to have bumpers, uh, frames on their license plates that said things like, uh, I'd rather be skiing, or uh, I'd rather be dancing. Did you see them? I'd rather be bowling. I'd rather be. And then I saw in the recent years, uh, I saw one that, at least one that said, I'd rather be here. 
Um, but the, 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 the point of not needing to have other be other or have it be different is not because you tra train your mind to say, all right, whatever you, you know. It's not, it's not a capitulation. It's really a wisdom statement. It can't be other, ever. Whatever it is, is. That's really fundamentally what's true. So I'd rather be other is to say I'm not satisfied with karma. You know, it's a, it's the whole world is not working out according to my, what I want it to be. My mother-in-law, blessed memory, used to uh, open the door. So, we, for example, we'd open the door to be going somewhere, and it would have started raining. And she'd say, "Just my luck, it started to rain." Like the whole cosmos operated <laughs> on her behalf. <laughs> Take it personally, you know. That's my luck. It's raining. So really recognizing that the imperative in the mind is just a, is a, is a, a it's a sham imperative. It, it's an imperative that that's extra. It can't do anything. It's, uh, if you, if it's not if it if that's not what it is, then to need it to be other is to create suffering. To see that the pain in the mind, what's ever come in, the lust or the aversion or the torpor or the worry or the doubt, to not remember the habit of forgetting that those are like weather, they come and go. I often, and you may have been one of the people that I saw in an interview, came in and said, you know, I was doing fine. It's really, it's opening up for me. I feel great every day, new insights. And suddenly, today I got up and my mind is out to lunch. I can't do a thing. I can't put two breaths together. I can't keep two thoughts sequential. My mind is all over the place. I try this, I try that. And, and sometimes we end up saying, listen, why don't you just decide that your mind has the flu? You have the flu of the mind. You know, that, you know, when you get a flu in your body, you don't get all outraged with it. Why is this? It, it's just, it's, alas, I have a flu of the body. In a day, I'll feel better. The worst, two days, I'll feel better. It's a flu of the mind. Also, it's like the weather blows in and stays for a couple of days, and then it blows out. We didn't make it come. You don't have to get rid of it. It'll go. And as a matter of fact, when you say, all right, I have this flu of the mind, damnedest thing, I can't put two thoughts together. And then the next minute, you can, because you're not fighting with it. It's the fighting, actually, that confuses it more and more. I think that's what most often happens when some disagreeable mind state takes up residence or appears to take up residence. It's just actually floating by. It's mostly our struggle with them that keeps them there. Really, if we could say, you know, bad hair day, so whatever, it's, it'll pass, it'll pass. I actually make sometimes decisions on the basis of a flu of the mind, you know, but and some particularly big upset in my mind is outraged. Uh, and it takes a while for a mind to, I don't often get outraged. I, that's not because of their great talent that I've cultivated. I come from fairly mild-mannered people. And uh, that's really a great help if you come from my mild-mannered, cheerful people. Because anger is not one of my, um, one of my glitch positions when my mind is challenged. Worry, yes, and lust, maybe. 
but not so much, not so much, uh, not so much anger. On those rare occasions when I'm infuriated with something, which are rare, I could take a day and stay home. Like I'm, it's I'm not. First of all, it's not safe to operate heavy equipment, and second of all, <laughs> I'm not really safe to be with people. I'll say something that's not right. I could recognize that this is, if I if I had a communicable disease, I'd stay home for a day to get over it, so I didn't go spread it around with other people and wait for it to pass. Really, it's to get over feeling being held captive by something or impelled by something. I mean, really, we have, as adults, we have much more, um, having made it to adulthood, we all of us have, have more ability to be wait, to wait, to be patient, to wait for things to pass so that we can see more clearly. In the end of, uh, towards the end of the novel Siddhartha by Herman Hesse, talking about the, uh, the hero of that book who is modeled after Siddhartha Gautama, became the Buddha. Siddhartha becomes a ferryman, taking people back and across a, or forth across a river on a ferry. And uh, in talking about his own um, achievements in uh, really clarifying and uh, composing his mind, he described himself as the two talents he had. Is He said, I can wait and I can fast. That's what I can do. And I think what that means is my impulses are now under the control of reason. I can wait. When you think about patience, we think about cultivating patience, but I think it's actually cultivating wisdom. If something isn't happening now, it isn't happening now. And impatience is, a, is kind of a, 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 an extra suffering. If it's not ready to happen, it's not ready to happen. Tapping your foot or isn't going to make it happen any faster, making yourself upset about it. It'll happen when it'll happen. So recognizing that the, those mind states are, uh, are passing, they're not solid, that they come and go. Recognizing that you can work around them. That's another way of uh, uh, untying some of the habitual knots, making new patterns of response. Recognizing that uh, they're actually empty of substance. Sometimes we feel so stuck. Years ago, I'm trying to think if I can tell this story in one minute, because it's a long story. Years ago, in that same class, that I, in that same sixth grade class, I was working hard at trying to portray mindfulness as quite plain and uh, normative behavior. And one of the boys in the class said, uh, "Your grandson, my grandson, Colin, was in class." Said Colin, "said uh, I didn't tell you this story about the Bengali woman." Colin said, "You once met a woman who could walk through walls. Is that true?" And I'd been really making a case for mindfulness meditation, completely a normal thing. Colin said, you once met a woman who could walk through walls. Is that true? I said, well, yes, I did meet a woman like that. She was my teacher's teacher. They brought her to the United States and um, brought her around to all the cities to introduce her to their students. They said, did you meet her? I said, I did. Did you talk to her? I did. 
did you see her walk through any walls? I said, I didn't, but my teacher said that she could. So I believed that she could. He said, how did she do it? <laughs> I said, well, they said that she concentrated so hard that all of her molecules disappeared, dissolved, and they could pass right through the wall, and then they reconstituted on the other side. These were all you know, 11 and 12 year olds, and they were all nodding their head like that's a completely normal explanation. <laughs> and I taught the rest of the morning all the other things. We did meditation, we did some yoga, I went home. And I got a packet of letters of thank you from that class three days later. And everybody wrote, uh, Dear Sylvia, Dear Grandma. Everybody wrote, I really thank you for coming to our class. I liked doing the exercise. I liked hearing about the Buddha, what they liked. Thank you, thank you. One letter, the same boy who had asked about Collins said, wrote, Dear Sylvia, I liked everything. I like this, I like that. And he said, I'm still thinking about that woman who walked through the walls. He said, and what I was wondering is, if in the middle of walking through the wall, <laughs> she became distracted, would she get stuck in the wall forever? <laughs> it's a very, very great story because, first of all, I, you know, it's, it's, I don't know, seven or eight years now have passed, and I bet this little boy is somewhere doing fabulously well in college because he asked and he asked and he asked, so that's number one. Second of all, I thought to myself, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fabulous metaphor for the fact that I get stuck in walls all the time. I get stuck in walls of, uh, it has to be this way, otherwise I can't be happy. I, I can't forgive so-and-so for this and that. I am stuck in walls of fixed views that I have, of these are good guys, these are bad guys, these are the people I like, they vote the way I do, these are the people that don't vote the way I do, whatever it is. Oh, look what time it is. I've been carrying this around with me now. It's fine with me, however you voted, honestly. It really is. <laughs> it really is. I bring this just to tell you about walls and to tell you about getting stuck in walls. So you know how I voted, but I, I think I told you that. Anyway, I voted for Mr. Obama, and I worked very hard for his election. And I was very uh, rewarded a few days later by riding. I was flying somewhere, and I buy the Wall Street Journal when I fly. It's one of the things they do. I like to check in on what they're saying, because they usually take the same information that I have and turn it into a whole different other conclusion. So I like to see how they do that. So <laughs> I was reading an article that was called something like, uh, Obama's doing everything right. And um, surprised about that. And then they had some big print in the middle where it gives you a summary. It says, uh, Mr. Obama has assembled a first-rate economic team. It goes on to say all these great, wonderful things, complimentary, and I thought, great, 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 great. And you know, over here it says who wrote the article, and at the end it tells you they're, they're employed by the American Enterprise, uh, uh, or you know, whatever think tank they, they, they're part of. So I come to the end and I was looking to see where this author is affiliated. And it says, Mr. Rove is a former senior advisor and deputy chief of staff to President George W. Bush. And Mr. Rove, I look back in the beginning and see, indeed, it is that very Mr. Rove. Mr. Rove, Mr. Rove, Mr. Rove. Mr. Rove. <laughs> and 
And, and I read the article again. Now, yes, it's complimentary. And I see how everybody's, I, mean, I think everybody's mind has walls. Mine has walls. It makes views about how people are going to think, what they're going to do, way in advance of giving them the latitude to see what are they thinking now. What if I could meet everybody new, not take all my accumulated habits of mind? I'd be really, I, I, if I could do that, I'd be free, I think. The views are actually empty, you know. In the end of the Metta Sutta, it said, um, by not clinging to fixed views, the pure-hearted one, being freed from sense desire, is not born again into this world. I think that not born again into this world means it's finished with suffering. However you want to understand this. I don't, I don't know about successive incarnations. But in this world, I am reborn continually into suffering and freed when I see that the walls I've built, the walls I am stuck in are walls I have built with my thoughts and my opinions and my views and my habits. And if I stop building the walls, I can walk through them. So in two minutes to say, the other techniques, the other capacities we are training here, time after time, just by practicing, seeing that the, the mind is about to get caught in a glitch and it doesn't do it. And you see that there's this possibility of catching the mind in mid-tie itself into a knot and not doing it, and saying to yourself, relax, just take another step, take another breath, take another step, it's like here was a pitfall and you could have got caught in a whole story and a confusion. Say, I'm not doing that today. Thank you very much. I'm going forward. And I think that it, uh, it builds confidence. I believe it builds confidence. It's my experience that it builds confidence. It's a, like a part of faith, which is another thing. I, 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 I remember... Uh, hearing the Buddha stories from my teachers when I began to practice, and uh, knowing that my teachers were much like me, uh, they were Westerners. They were they had this more or less the same backgrounds that I did, same education. But I I intuited that they knew something. They had some capacity of mind that I didn't have. And especially because they were humans just like myself, ordinary people, Westerners, ordinary people like myself. I really got it that that capacity is a human capacity. We could each of us be free. Often people talk about, you know, the Buddha was a human. And I, you know, I love that idea. But it was very important for me that my teachers were regular people, humans with difficulties in life and all kinds of things, but they had a mind capacity that they could transmit to me in their teaching that I believed was true and that I wanted to. The last thing I was going to talk about, maybe I have to do it in the next talk because we're running out of time, is that the other capacity that we train, 
just by living here the way we do, is the capacity for renunciation. And each time we, 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 we don't talk to each other, each time we keep the silence, each time we eat the food that's offered, each time we uh, let go of the need to have it otherwise, we are building and consolidating that uh, ability in the mind to keep itself balanced and to really uh, keep equanimity steady enough so that wisdom can shine through. So we'll sit for a minute. Thank you. <coughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit Dharma Seed dot org slash donate.